Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 841 miles in 43 hours, 25 minutes and 13 seconds. That's the current record for riding from Land's End to John O'Groats, if you fancy having a crack at it. A fascinating new book on the end-to-end record will give you plenty of reasons not to. If the speeding lorries don't get you, then the blisters and the hallucinations probably will. We hear from author Paul Jones about the remarkable men and women who do take on the challenge. Top mountain bike racer Isla Short has faced challenges of her own in the past year, a disrupted race schedule, training in lockdown and taking Ruler's executive editor on a bikepacking trip through the highlands on the trail of an 18th century outlaw. This is Ruler Conversations, brought to you by Lacquer, bicycle insurance powered by the community. Scottish mountain biker Isla Short is keeping her fingers crossed for an undisrupted racing season. When she was finally able to race last year, her results were impressive and put her on the list for a possible place in Tokyo. But so much about 2021, on and off the bike, remains uncertain. For Isla, it's the continuation of a year of contrast. Lockdown one, you know, the weather was nice, it was summer and it was a bit of a novelty, kind of slowing down, chilling out and being able to just train and focus on riding my bike was really nice and it really paid off when the races came around in October and then I had this three week period of really intense competition where I surprised myself at the world championships and and the other races as well and then I kind of came back home to lockdown two which was at the start of winter and I've kind of just spent the last three months struggling through that I think same as a lot of people it's definitely been a lot harder just because the weather's been pretty bad and you know the days have been darker and shorter and I think everyone kind of thought we'd get to January and we'd be able to put 2020 behind us but that's obviously not been the case and things are still very up in the air so it's definitely a lot harder the second time round, and I'm a bit over it as everyone is but I'm suffering through <laughs> Have you been managing to get out and train as much as you wanted to? Yeah, I've actually done some really productive training kind of since Christmas time. I had a very wobbly December where I just, I think I'd worked so hard all summer to, you know, summon the energy to stay focused and, and I'd put so much energy into my training. I, can't, I hadn't really realised till afterwards how exhausting that had been. And I got to December and just, you know, with the... The prospect of having another disrupted start of the year was it was quite difficult but yeah I have been able to do some really good stuff and I was living in Glasgow until December and then we moved up to Aberfoyle which was a saviour because training is a lot nicer here and just being in the countryside during lockdown just is much better for me than being surrounded by buildings. <laughs> and you have uh, easier access presumably to to good places you can train there. Yeah, there's so much variety here. I mean, the weather is the only thing which kind of stops us exploring as much as we want to at the moment. But 
we're right on the edge of the highlands so we've got Munro's that we can kind of drive to in half an hour and there's some nice road riding and I can be kind of on the trails behind my house and I can do a three-hour ride and never be more than 10 minutes from my house so it's it's a nice place. You mentioned um, the kind of season that the kind of short season that you had last year but it was pretty good wasn't it you got some good results. Yeah it was really good the World Cups where I was 11th and 15th were kind of where I thought I would be if last year had been normal anyway I kind of I wanted a top 10 in 2020 and I missed that by four seconds so I couldn't be too disappointed and then obviously world championships which were the week after yeah I kind of I knew the course really suited me and there was kind of a bit of hype around me doing well at that event because of the nature of the course and because I'd kind of been knocking on the door of the top 10 the week before but to finish fifth was like pretty beyond my expectations so that felt kind of it was really nice to end what was a difficult year with something tangible and something that I could take as progression within my career little did I know that I would be kind of searching for that again this year but yeah I was I'm really glad that that happened and that the races managed to go ahead and that I got something out of the year and what do you think this year does hold you know in an ideal world which we're not in uh what do you think this uh, <laughs> what do you think this year would have in store for you well I think I'm currently on like plan f of starting my season it's incredibly difficult for British athletes to leave the country at the moment because of obviously our levels of COVID have been much higher in the past two months although that's kind of swapping at the moment which doesn't really make the situation any easier because there's now races being cancelled over in Europe which were happening kind of a month ago that we had to watch so now that we're kind of allowed to kind of move around a bit more as professional athletes, things just aren't happening where we want to go. So in an ideal world, the World Cups will start up again in early May. And the first two of them are qualifying races for the Olympics. Great Britain has the potential to qualify a second female spot. So that's all very much up in the air as there's there's three female riders, including me, who have the potential to get selected for the Olympics if the Olympics happens so there's a lot of ifs yeah I think ideally I I I honestly don't mind if I go to the Olympics because a year ago I wasn't going to Tokyo it's only because of my performances at the season in October that I've kind of made my chances of going much more likely so I'm pretty chilled about that but I would really like to have a full World Cup season and not kind of have everything crammed into a three-week space again because you know, like I spend eight months of my year racing and to miss out on that a second time, I'm finding quite difficult. So fingers crossed I'll be back racing in the next month or so. Rouleur is historically a, a road racing magazine. So I imagine that a lot of our readers and listeners won't necessarily know your background or know much about mountain bike racing at all. Um, how did you first get into bikes? I've always ridden a bike because my family are super outdoorsy and my childhood holidays were like loading up the tandem on the triplet with uh, my parents and my sisters and finding some campsites in Germany or even in the UK and in Scotland as well and just kind of touring around them for a few weeks I was always super jealous when I was younger of all my friends who were going to Disneyland and Centre Parks but now I'm I'm so grateful that we did all those adventures instead because it's way more fun yeah, my dad was racing long distance mountain bike events, kind of uh, like 10 under the bend, which is um, a race up in Fort William and that sort of thing. And I used to go along and kind of pit for him and get his food ready and make sure, you know, he was ready to go each lap and stuff. And then 
just decided I wanted to join in. So then it kind of switched and my dad started supporting me. And when I was 14 or 15, that's when I raced my first national race. And pretty much like two years later, I found myself at my first World Cup and have just progressed from there. And then kind of suddenly I'm like, oh, I'm professional. (laughs) One thing you did manage to get in, um, and we can see it in in, in the current issue of Rouleur, you went on a trip um, on the Rob Roy Way uh, with executive editor Ian Cleverly. Uh, can you tell us about that? Tell us about the Rob Roy Way. It's hard to hard for an English person to say that, I think. <laughs> yeah, so it's a cycling slash walking route which uh, runs from Drimmon, just north of Glasgow near Loch Lomond, up to Pitlochry, which is kind of Perthshire. There's two different lengths. There's a 70 four mile one and a 96 mile one it's like a bit of single track bit of tarmac and it basically it was created to commemorate Rob Roy who was a Scottish outlaw during the Jacobite uprising and he's quite well known for escaping imprisonment and death multiple times throughout his life he became an illegal cattle rancher in um, like his later years and there's a few kind of historical landmarks from his time around near where I live there's like the place where he was born and then his his supposed gravestone but that's controversial as well because the McGregor clan and the Campbell clan were in like this big argument about whether he was whether he's actually buried there yeah and then the house where he lived out the rest of his life and stuff so this is all kind of dotted near the trail that runs up to Pitlochry from Grimmon I like it because it's not like the West Highland Way which is super commercialized and really well known it's you know people don't really know who this guy is and it was really cool actually doing a bit more research into him after I decided I wanted to do something on the Rob Roy way and yeah just it's a cool little trail and I think there's a really cool way to learn about Scottish history and the Jacobites. You ended up doing you know what I think what we would now call bike packing and kind of you know camping out is that something you you'd still do a lot of is does that form part of your training in any way? I kind of I try and always fit some sort of adventure in like after my season in October time and then I always take a break in February time and try and do something then it's part of cycling that I really love and I think that probably comes from touring with my parents because I guess like we had panniers and loaded bikes and we were self-supported so we were basically bike packing so I think it comes from that my boyfriend's really into it as well and he he does bike packing races yeah it's definitely a part of cycling that I love but it doesn't it doesn't tie in with my training all the time. It's definitely a thing that I would not want to do like during the race season or anything, but really simply it's two big days on the bike. So it is, it is good endurance training in the winter. And if you can combine that with kind of just getting away from everything and having a bit of an adventure too, then I just think it's a great thing to do. And you can see more photos of Isla and Ian on the Rob Roy way on ruler.cc. Isla, thank you so much for joining us and good luck with 2021. Thanks very much. You're listening to Ruler Conversations, brought to you by Lacquer, bicycle insurance powered by the community. Lacquer's collective cover is made especially for cyclists, from the coffee and cake rider to the crit racer. Lacquer has transformed traditional insurance with no more fixed upfront premiums, 
Instead, your monthly contributions are based on the collective's claims that month. Your maximum monthly price is capped, but the savings are all yours. Plus, 80% of your money goes straight back into the Lacquer Collective, fixing, replacing and helping. And the other 20% keeps their wheels spinning. It's as simple as that. When things do go bad, Lacquer's got your back. Claims are handled by their team of cycling experts and usually agreed within a day with no depreciation or excess. They've ditched annual contracts locking you in, with Lacquer, if you want to leave, you can, anytime. If you head over to www.lacquer.co, new customers can get their first 30 days free by signing up today with the discount code RULER. Issue 102 of Rouleur, the True Grit edition, which includes Isla and Ian's Highlands excursion, Swain Tuff's worst retirement ever, Wiggins and Yates on Eddie Merckx, and the story of the Lotto Pro teams, is available now through Rouleur.cc. Now then, here's an infomercial message for the discerning folk of Rouleurland. For the finest long-form cycling journalism and exquisite photography and design, why don't you simply subscribe to Rouleur magazine? It costs as little as £7 per month. Regular columnists include Orla Shenwi, Roman Bardet and me, Ned Bolting, accompanied by features from the best writers and photographers in the business. Simply go to rouleur.cc. You know it makes sense. Mike Broadwith currently holds the end-to-end record on a conventional bike of 43 hours, 25 minutes and 13 seconds. When he took the record in 2018, the previous one, set by Gethin Butler, had stood for 17 years. The history of this slightly bizarre record is recounted in a new book, End-to-End, by the author Paul Jones. You may know his previous books on hill climbing and the time trial legend Alf Engers. It's a fascinating book which captures the statistics and facts, but more importantly, the extraordinary stories of the people who take on this extraordinary challenge. I always say all my books are about people and not really cycling, but no one believes me. Like, and even my mum doesn't. And, you know, so I say the book about Alf Engers, I would say, you know, is about people I would but I don't think people really see it that way they're like no it's a book about time trying mate you know it's about our fingers so but I think this one maybe I worked a bit harder to move that frame slightly more to that side and I think whereas before like I'd have a theme which is happiness or you know weird weird obsessions here I guess maybe I started with that theme and people and then moved to the cycling rather than the other way around so so I think I think that that's certainly evident, and I think so. I, I can't, you know, like I, the chapters generally start with something, some color, some texture that isn't related necessarily to to these, you know. Oh, so and so did the record, and they did this many watts, and or whatever, you know. Is actually oh, he's a math teacher, you know. His heart beats really slowly, or you know, she drives lorries, or this lady lives in Clevedon, you know. That that was my starting point. So I think that's how I shifted the frame a bit to make it work in that way does that make sense yeah and and one of the things that does come across very strongly in the book is is that the end-to-end does attract um a very particular breed of person doesn't it yeah it does because it requires i think and i've come back to the you can see it in each chapter as almost an epilogue i guess i don't know but like the one of the ideas people keep coming back to is that took a lot of commitment you know or i don't know if i've ever done anything that was quite that 
that required that much investment of time or you know that idea i think percolates through it and that that's the thing it's like you, you see these people and they are they get utterly committed to this thing they get this you know that so there's something about those people who a commit to it and b when it gets really grippy which it pretty much always does in a way that you you know i can't i don't haven't really seen i think in other events when it gets grippy they somehow keep going in ways that you you just think well why why are they how 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 are they how are they doing that you know how are they you know why, why would this is not rational almost like yeah because one of the things that really comes across strongly is that pretty much everybody i think everybody without exception at some point has a bloody awful time it's horrible yeah yeah and and by awful we mean like extremes of privation that aren't healthy you know or you know that are sort of you know losing fingernails you know is probably the thin end of it really you know it's just you know people not knowing where they are or who they are or or like blisters that that aren't blisters anymore they just your your hand is a different shape or you know your neck is collapsed in on itself you know things that aren't really that good and the hallucinations as well which seems to be a common theme yeah that's the and it's the sleep isn't it so and I, i think you know, it's classic sleep deprivation stuff. And that's why it's such a peculiar thing, isn't it? Because the, the benchmark for someone doing an end-to-end, and it's, this is sort of linked, is basically uh, how do they do it at the 24-hour? And the 24-hour is this weird um, vestigial British time trial race, isn't it? Where you, who goes the furthest in 24 hours? Okay, you're the winner. Oh, you've done 540 miles. That's insane. And people say, okay, well, that's good prep for the end-to-end. And in a way it is. But the, the, the problem is, is that you can do the 540 miles and that's actually where the end-to-end begins. So it's this weird paradox there where actually they're like, yeah, I did that. I, I rode for 21 miles an hour for 24 hours, and that was really good. But now, I, now I'm now i going to be end up riding at 16 miles an hour into the all this madness. And that's when people start hallucinating. And that's when the combination of like fatigue and, and sleep deprivation is just such a like, you know, like a thick brew of, of, of trouble for them and yeah people see stuff they see they it ranges doesn't it from the from the like is that what i saw is that not what i saw which is you know our trees people is that a bin bag or a person or you know whatever to full-on hallucinatory moments where things are there that genuinely aren't there you know and and that yeah that's it's quite spectacular and it's quite quite interesting to write about you know those those moments did you come to any conclusion about why on earth people do it I don't know if I did. I think, like, I think I was quite close to Mike Broadbridge, and I think that comes out in the book because, you know, I spoke to him a lot, and and uh, you know that experience was quite integral. And I I think he 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 did it because he thought he could do it. But I think there's also an element when people do it, I don't think they realise exactly how hard it's going to be, and then very few people go back and do it again because they. It's almost like I think if they knew, they wouldn't do it. And I think that's an element, you know, if you genuinely knew uh, to get this record, what you'd have to do, I think very few people would would actually set out along the road. So I don't know. I mean, I guess, you know, people do it because they're driven, because they, you know, don't have anything else to do. <laughs> you know, Janet Tebbett did it because she thought it was a good idea. People do it because they think they, they can do it. Like there's, there's this myth, there's myth sometimes of the slightly gettable record. So they're like, oh, that, that looks like one maybe that could go. And then they realise why it's, not gone for a while um but i didn't i don't think i came to any blinding conclusions i mean some people did it because they thought they wanted to didn't want to do the kind of racing they were doing anymore 
you know, and don't know <laughs> the answer. You speak to and and come across uh, a range of remarkable women in the book as well, and I sort of I'd heard of Eileen Sheridan, but I wasn't aware of uh, people like Pauline Strong or Janet Tibbet, who are real characters in the book. Yeah, though I I don't want you know I don't want to sound trite about it, like, but I I think that when I wrote this book, I was kind of adamant that that. And and I always have been. I don't think I'm sort of, you know, a revisionist sort of feminist or something, but I was adamant that the female experience was of equal importance. And that had to be reflected in the narrative. And it had to be reflected when there was an absence. And it had to be reflected, like in the early days when the RRA for women was, you know, not existent until the 1930s. But it also had to be evident in those stories. And obviously, Eileen Sheridan, we know, is like probably singularly pretty much the greatest psych- British cyclist, if not world cyclist of that, you know, of her era. But like Pauline Strong is just just a, a super fantastically strong, you know, aptly named rider. And meeting her was a real privilege and a joy. And I, I sort of came away from that meeting, like just dancing with excitement about the conversations we'd had and, and her experiences. You know, she rode the Tour de France, you know, she rode the world. She, you know, she did these phenomenal things. She was riding up mountain passes beyond, you know, behind, you know, Jeannie Longo and Maria Cannons and, you know, supporting, you know, ride, you know, I just was gobsmacked. Like if that's an equivalent male rider, it's an equivalent male British rider, certainly. You know, if you said this is someone who rode, you know, in the mid 80s, rode three Tour de France's and did all of this stuff, you know, the, her profile would be, certainly be much bigger, I think. You mentioned the RRA there, the Road Records Association, and they are a unique organisation, aren't they? Some people, yeah, some people find them very difficult. And I think, I think that's because they can be. Uh, I don't doubt that. And I, I think um, people have, like, you know, do struggle with that. And I think the RRA themselves struggle with their identity. In that, and I, I'm not going to, you know, I don't need to gloss that. I think I would argue that the, the committee of the RRA at the moment is, you know, how do we marry up this thing with the modern world, with, you know, the shift in things and with not just not just the way British cycling has changed, you know, arguably since Sky or whatever, but also with increased road traffic with the idea that place-to-place records are really hard to do with the nature of the roads these days and all of that and they have sort of moved and stuff like that but they are they are still you know a very very um, vinyl kind of analogy kind of institution and is it, it'll be interesting to see what they do over the next five to ten years because there is an interest in in this stuff there is an interest in the end-to-end arguably since Mike Broadbiff did his thing um it sort of resu- you know resurrected <laughs> reanimated the courts of these things but they, you know, they do these circuit records. But it will be interesting to see where they go because, you know, like a lot of things, and I think the Rough Stuff Fellowship is a good example. Um, these things seem to have been massively archaic and sort of exist in the past, suddenly to burst into the present, usually through a combination of images and narrative. And people are like, oh my god, this stuff's amazing, and we're suddenly fascinated. And I, and I think one of the reasons we're fascinated is because. We all want authenticity and we want to see it and we want authenticity because the world's really complicated these days. So the RRA kind of, there are, there are examples for where it might go, but yeah, they, they, they're not without their um, aspect. They're not without their idiosyncrasies. Yeah. Yeah. And, and actually they're very, they're very deterred, like they're very sort of proud organization and they're a very typically, I think very typically British cycling organization, you know, this isn't, you know, they exist in a, in a, very peculiar they have no connection to british cycling they have no connection to the uci this is a very very singular thing and they are very proud of those traditions but it's how those traditions then 
are translated, I guess, because they have to be, don't they? You can't, you know, otherwise it, it, otherwise it disappears. Uh, without giving too much away, you did ride on the route of the end-to-end. Personally, how, what sort of experience was that for you? Well, I, I made some um, terrible mistakes. And um, I did the worst, I think, kind of combination of end-to-end sort of things you could do, like absolutely in any circumstances. And the first thing is I tried to stick it around work and some other stuff that was going on. So it meant I had to break it up a bit and I'd take a bit of time off. And you know, The second thing was, is I tried to follow a lot of the record route to see what it was like, because I thought these people are gonna be talking about these places, so therefore I need to be able to know what they're like. So when, when someone says, oh, Helmsdale, oh, I was growing up in Helmsdale and it was amazing. It's like, I needed to have ridden Helmsdale. When they talk about Bob Moore, like you feel like you need to have been there. I think that's the sort of my, my perspective. But the bottom line is, is that they're pretty grim places, <laughs> a lot of them. They're, in fact, they're beyond grim and they're main roads because it's a route for speed. You know, it's not a route for touring. So I, what, you know, I, what I didn't do is I didn't do it in a beautiful way. I did it in a hideous, horrible way. And also I did a couple of stages. I did really, really long ones. So I did like Bristol to uh, Land's End to Bristol in one chunk, you know, and so 212 miles or so, just to see what it was like to have that kind. Because I'm not that kind of rider, like I totally am not. You know, I'm, a, I'm a, at heart, I'm probably a hill climber in a 25 mile time trailer, occasionally doing a bit of road or something. But I, I was like, okay, yeah, I'll go and do this because this way I'll be able to understand this language. Of course, I didn't understand the language. I just understood how horrible it was, you know, for me trying to do something I'm not set set out to do. You know, and the first stage was okay, but I did this one one from Bristol. After that, I had a break, and then I did Bristol to Bradford, and it was just disgusting. It was just like a like a vivid reason why not to do those things in that way, and it was utterly grim. And several terrible, horrible things happened, and I can still taste the lorry juice like in my mouth and ear now. And I, uh, but at the same time, when I was doing it, I was like, "Are this all right? This is going to write. This is, you know, I've sort of." I wasn't like, you know, like luxuriating in it because I didn't enjoy it. But I knew that actually this was a chapter now that I'd written for myself. It would it would sound good in the book. It would read well in the book. Yeah, yeah, it would. And it, and it does, I think, that bit. Like it sort of, you know, it's pretty unvarnished, you know. And, and if you ever want a reason not to cycle through Wolverhampton or the Gailey Roundabout or Stoke, that it's in that chapter. You know, I, I'm fairly clear about that. And End to End by Paul Jones is published by Little Brown and it's out today.